open. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 624. If you're new to the Bible, the Psalms are a great book for you. They're right in the middle, and then you're just looking for a big Psalm 130. As Matt mentioned, this is a Psalm of Ascent. A good way to think of that is maybe like a playlist, or if you're slightly older, maybe like a mixtape of songs made for God's people as they journey to meet with him. Uh, So for them, it was as they went up to annual festivals. For us, we might sing these songs as we go to church on a Sunday morning, or perhaps more broadly, they might be songs for us as we journey through life, waiting to meet the Lord. That's exactly what these psalms are, and Psalm 130 is a wonderful one. It's very rich, very rich in things that we might expect to see a little bit more of in the New Testament. You might think Psalm 130 just sounds a little bit New Testament, so much so that Martin Luther called it a Pauline psalm. This is a psalm which, which its theology could be that of the Apostle Paul's. It is a New Testament psalm in many ways. So let's read it together. We've just sung it, but let's read it together. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. This is God's word. There we have it, right at the start of the psalm. Out of the depths. I don't know what the most scared or terrified you've ever been in your life is. I don't know the moment where you felt incredibly frightened. But if you can try and conjure that emotion, that feeling of being deep down in the depths, that moment where your stomach just churns, where you feel absolutely desperate. I don't know when you felt that, but I want you to feel that. That's exactly where this psalm begins. Cold sweats, night terror, Hope drifting away from you. I don't know if you felt that ever, but try, if you can, to feel that emotion because that's exactly where Psalm 130 begins. Look with me again at verse 1. Down in the depths, out of the depths, I cry to you. Right in those depths. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? The deep depths. This is a picture of drowning, sinking away into the engulfing abyss. Think about it dipping down into the depths where there is no foothold, nothing to latch hold of. You are just sinking. I've not done a lot of open water swimming in my life. I've once jumped off a pedalo in the middle of Lake Geneva, and it was terrifying. I was on top of the water, but it was so murky, and you can just tell it is so deep that you feel terrified. Anything that knocks past your leg makes your heart just twitch, And it's freaky not to be able to see your toes, isn't it? What an awful feeling to, instead of being above the water, looking down, being under the water, deep down in the depths. It's especially scary if you're an Israelite. 
They're a group of people who are terrified of water. So the idea of being in the depths, drowning, is just an awful picture, isn't it? No wonder we find him crying out. Come with me to verse 2. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive. Hear me, hear me. The question is, what is the psalmist viewing as depths? What's the water in Psalm 130? This is not a psalm written from the high seas. There hasn't been any nautical mishap. Now the depths that the psalmist is talking about is this overwhelming conviction and realization of what the psalmist is as a sinner, as somebody who is trapped in sin and his standing before the Lord as a sinner. Sin is the murky and engulfing water of Psalm 130. Look with me over the psalm, just skim it. There is no other danger. There is no other peril. Sin is what leads the psalmist to cry out. It becomes really clear that this psalm is all about sin, right? Verse 1, we see that he cries. Verse 2, what does he cry for? For mercy. Verse 3, what is the thought that's occupying his mind? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins. It's there at the end of the passage as well, verse 8, sins. The contemplation that is a deep and a scary one for the psalmist is, I am a sinner and there is a holy God. This is the great wave of sin that is wafting over the psalmist as he plunges down into this conviction, this weight, this guilt. I am a sinner. Like the passage we read in Isaiah, he knows as a sinner before a holy God, oh, I am undone. Woe is me. I am ruined. That's the depths of Psalm 130. You might feel like this idea of sin or being a sinner seems a little bit outdated. Uh, But truthfully, in terms of what the Bible says about sin, sin is a failure to obey and live for the God who made you. God made us for himself, and so sin is a failure to live in the way that he says we should live. It's not doing the things that he says we should do, and it's doing the things that he says we shouldn't do. And there's lots of big, obvious ways that we know people do this in the world. Murder, rape, all of these terrible things that we know are sinful, but actually... Beneath the surface of sin, this is something we all do all the time. Not living according to what God says we should do. Not doing the things, doing the things that he says we shouldn't do. This is what we're like. We're sinners. There is a problem with our factory setting. We don't sin and then become sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We come out broken. We've been thinking as a church in our growth groups about this idea of respectable sins things which maybe you would never go to jail for, things which nobody in church is ever going to call you out for, but truthfully are wrong. Maybe you felt some conviction as you've looked at these things like ungratefulness, anger, bitterness, worldliness. You felt that conviction. Depths. Each of us in this room, if we were really honest, knows that every day we think and we act and we feel and we do things that truthfully are wrong. Maybe it's the things you think privately. Maybe it's the things that you say to your children when there's nobody else at home. Maybe it's the things that you would do when no one is watching. Maybe it's the things you want that you would never tell somebody you wanted. We're sinners. We do ugly things. Like the psalmist, we're wrapped up in these depths. This is us, right? And the worst thought of all, knowing that we're sinners, is the idea of every wrong thing we've done, every right thing we've not done, being kept together, compiled in some sort of hideous library of everything wrong we've ever done. 
Imagine if that record stood for you. Everything compiled together. I know that for me, that volume would make the Chilcot report look like a pamphlet. This is a colossal volume. The world's worst library. And the thought of anybody else seeing that room full of everything wrong you've ever done is just awful, isn't it? If we got your volume out tonight and put it up on this stage, filled this stage with everything ugly you've ever done and everything beautiful you've not done and then showed it in front of all these people, oh, just makes you feel sick, doesn't it? And the idea of all of that ugliness being before a God who in himself is all holiness and all beauty and all purity, oh, the depths of Psalm 130. This is the depths. It's guilt. It's conviction. And I know that we like to run from that. I love to run from that. Maybe we would rather tonight focus on our good qualities. I do quite a few good things too. Let's not think about that record of wrongs. Maybe I'd like to compare myself with somebody worse than me. Somebody who doesn't even go to church. There's lots of them. Or maybe we run from this feeling of being in the depths by listening to the voice of society. Society that says, oh no, the stuff that you're saying is wrong is actually right. You're not drowning in the depths, you're a fish. That's the voice of our society. You're not drowning. This isn't dying. As it dies, it says, this is the life. Here's where the living is. It's wrong. And we know it. Actually, if we were to face facts for one moment and feel the weight of this, I know it's sore, and I know it's gut-wrenching, and I know it's horrible. It's like drowning. But this is us. We can't stand before a holy God. If all we had was our record, none could stand. No one. We couldn't bear it because he couldn't bear us. This isn't old-fashioned. This is actually our current need. It's our deepest need. This is the human problem that we all have, that we all share, and we are in these depths. And the question is, if you would allow yourself just for a moment tonight to not run from that feeling, but to face it dead on, where are you going to go with that feeling of being in the depths? To quote the recently remade film, who are you going to call? Given that this is life and death, I would suggest not Ghostbusters. In fact, I think we should be like the psalmist. Please notice, he is not being pious or melodramatic in verses 1 to 3. This is a real call. And it's quite a strange call, isn't it? He's just said, Lord, no one can stand before you, but I'm going to call to you. Do you feel the irony of that? I can't stand before you, but actually I want to talk to you. Doesn't quite make sense, does it? And understand this. He is not saying, I think God is just not in the business of keeping records. Or I think God is actually just a little bit forgetful. Maybe he's not very good with his paperwork and he just doesn't know about my sin. No, that is not true. Hear these words from Psalm 69 about our sin before the Lord. Psalm 69 verse 5 says this, You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. Maybe you're more familiar with Psalm 51. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God knows. The psalmist calls to the Lord, not with his fingers crossed that God's forgetful, but because of what one commentator calls a blessed but. We might call it a beautiful but. 
From great depths, this great cry rises. Why? Come with me to verse 4. Let's see this blessed but. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. There is a great God that he cannot stand before, but he is the one he runs to. Why? In his sin, he knows there is a God with whom there is forgiveness. There is a great God. Do you see what I mean about Psalm 130 being quite New Testament? Psalm 130 is this powerful reminder of what it is to be lost in sin. But what a powerful reminder Psalm 130 is about God. Not only is he great in his holiness, he is great in forgiveness. This is who he is. There is hope to stand before him. Not that he's forgetful, but that he is forgiving. We don't need to put a bandage over the bullet hole of our sin by saying, oh, I'm going to compare myself. That's not the hope. The hope is to acknowledge we have a problem, acknowledge we've done wrong, and to acknowledge that there is a God who forgives. That cry is pretty justified, isn't it? In verses one to three. But the guilt and the shame and the oh the Lord feeling is nullified because there is a God with whom there is forgiveness. And so the psalmist goes from this private experience of verses one to four to give some public advice. From the experience of the one comes advice to the many. Look at it. Track me with you through the psalm. It's all I, 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 me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 verse seven, you. Suddenly he eyeballs the crowd and says you and you and you. Read with me verse seven. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. In verse 4, we found out that with the Lord is forgiveness. We've just found out he has two more eternal companions. With him is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. This is our great God. This is who he is in his very essence. Let's pull those apart a bit. They're stunning. Unfailing love. What would drive God to forgive sinners? Love. What holds those that he forgives? It is his love. And what is that love like? It is unfailing. Does it flicker? No. Does it waver? No. Does it diminish? No. It is unchanged. Because the God who feels it is an unchanging God. Unfailing love. Rock solid. Full redemption. It's a very Bible word. We met it this morning with Ross. It actually describes for us in this psalm, how does God show the love? And how does he work out the forgiveness? It is redemption. To redeem simply means to ransom, to purchase, out of danger. In the context of this psalm, to redeem would be to pay the price, to get rid of that record of sins, and to bring someone into a state where they could stand before God, to leave them safe to stand. That is what redemption would be. That is what forgiveness is. And what kind of redemption does the Lord offer? Look with me at verse 7. Full. Full. Total. Complete. When God redeems, he redeems fully. Forgives without compromise, but makes the dirty holy. This is how he redeems. We've just spent a week at Contagious in Leviticus. You want to make dirty people holy? It is difficult. It is costly. Takes blood. Read Leviticus to see how you make dirty people holy without compromising, but God comes to pay the whole number. Every thought, every deed, every attitude, he knows the ransom price. 
and he's prepared to pay it. Look at the psalm again and how it's shaped. If you need forgiveness from a verse one to three kind of depth, you need a God of verses four and seven quality and verse eight says you need him to do the redeeming. Come with me to verse eight. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Not just he will redeem them. It's quite personal, isn't it? He himself. We know who's going to do the redeeming. And for the psalmist, he looks on this as a future promise. Somehow, at some point, the Lord is going to himself come and redeem. As we read on in the Bible, we know exactly how he does that. It's in the Lord Jesus. God himself coming into the world, the eternal son of God, became a man. Why? To pay the ransom price. Think about Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. This is who he is. He is the one with whom there's forgiveness. Think back to Mark 2 that we read just a moment ago. Jesus meets this man, and it seems to me when I read that story, the deepest depth of that man's life is that he cannot twitch a finger. Surely we would look on a man who is absolutely immobile and say, the biggest problem in your life right now is your disability. Jesus says, no. The biggest problem in your life is Psalm 130. You're in the depths of sin. And he says to him, you are forgiven. And in one sense, the Pharisees are absolutely dead on right. They have in mind Psalm 130. They know, hang on. Hide yourself. With the Lord is forgiveness. They're right. This is blasphemy. Except it isn't. Because the Lord was in the room. So right, yet so wrong. This is Psalm 130 in action as the Lord Jesus comes into the world, he himself, to pay the price. And how does he do that? He goes to the cross. An innocent man in the place of the guilty goes to die. Makes that record of our sin his own. And he dies for each and every line of it. Every page in that volume paid in full that we might be forgiven, rescued from the depths, safe in an unfailing love that would go so very far, fully redeemed. You could look at every line on that hideous volume and it would say, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. And we know it was paid in full and we know God accepted his payment because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. The check cleared. His payment was received by God. The sacrifice is accepted. This is our great God. As I said before, these are the profound and deep truths about who he is in his very being. This is the fundamental doctrine of all true theology, that God is these things. With him are these things. If you don't know a God who is like this, you do not know the God of the universe. The deep things of God are an amazing comfort to us when we're in deep depths, aren't they? If you're in depths like verses one to three, you cannot have a small God to get you out of it. You need a great God, and there is one. We just sung, our shame is deeper than the sea. His grace goes deeper still. His character is our comfort. And so if you're not a Christian, let me talk to you directly. I don't really know anything about your life. I don't know what you've done or what you've not done. I'm not gonna make any pronouncement over you. I want to let you hear what Psalm 130 would say to you. Psalm 130 says, you are a human being. Like all of us, you're a sinner. You're in the depths. You need forgiveness. But amazingly, there is a God who can forgive you tonight. A God of amazing love who would send his son into the world for you 
that you might have new life. What should you do? You should copy the psalmist, cry out to him for mercy. What should you do? You should obey the psalmist. Verse seven says, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus. This is what you must do. Maybe you're a Christian and you feel like, I know this, heard this a thousand times. In fact, I'm a little bit familiar with it. Come with me to verse four and see that this is not something we can be flippant about. Verse four says this, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore, or your translation might say, so that. So there's gonna be a direct connection between God having forgiveness with him and whatever comes next. With you there is forgiveness, therefore, so that you are feared. God is a forgiving God for a purpose, that he might be feared. And I think by fear, it doesn't mean the terror of verse three. No, this is somebody who is saved and safe. The fear it means here is a reverence, a right awe for God. Knowing the God of Psalm 130 should make us awe-filled people. This is not anything light, but the gospel is awesome. I want to save the world awesome tonight because the word awesome has meant high five. This is not awesome in a high five sense. God is awesome staring wide-eyed at the cost, amazed by the gospel, wonder-filled, kind of awesome. We are to be people who have a reverence in our hearts because we've met God in his forgiveness. And that reverence is to bleed into every part of our living. That our whole lives might say, I am marveling at someone great. I am marveling at a God who would forgive. So I'm going to eat food and own stuff and have family and have kids in a way that says there is something bigger in my life than stuff and food and kids and friends. That is what fear in this verse means. Serving with reverence. He forgives so that we might do this way. We know his bigness more than anyone else. Do you realize that Christians know the grandeur of God more than anybody else in all of creation? We've met him in his forgiveness. Spurgeon says it this way, non-fear God like those who have experienced his forgiving love. It's absolutely right, isn't it? Think of that in the New Testament. Titus 2.14, speaking about our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus, says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. What are that people like? Eager to do what is good. He saves us that we might live lives that magnify him. Doing everything in a way which says, I have just got utmost awe and respect and love for a God who would die on a tree. That is Christian life. We sing a song, don't we? May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time. I totally get the sentiment of that song. I think it's a wonderful song. But in one sense, I totally disagree with that line. May I see it like the first time standing as a sinner lost. I get what it's saying about coming to the cross and to the gospel with freshness, but in a very real sense, I want to see the cross like the millionth time with added depth and added insight because as we go on as Christians, we're meant to know more about the depths and more about the greatness of God. And so the cross should be bigger to us. This happened for one of our young people, Sophie, this week. I said, Sophie, at the end of one of the big teach sessions at Contagious, I think it was four or five days in, what's really stood out for you this week? What struck you? This is somebody who already knows the gospel, who's already a Christian, said this, just how sinful we are. Just how bad sin is. 
So, so Sophie, what does that make you think about the work of the Lord Jesus? Oh, it's better. It's bigger. That's exactly right, isn't it? Here's what happens. As we come along in the Christian life and we become Christians, we know for the first time, I'm in the depths and God is great. And so we see this thing in the middle, the cross. But what happens as we go on in the Christian life, I'm always being more and more convicted of the greatness of my sin. And I'm always knowing more and more the greatness of God. And so what looms large in the mature Christian? The cross. The cross gets big as we go on in our Christian lives. We're meant to see it with new depth and with new profoundness, knowing more its value. This happens when you meet older saints, doesn't it? They mean all they mean so much when they say amazing words of old hymns because they know more about the truth that's in them. We should be people who sing songs like this. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. You know that more when you've been a Christian for longer. Christian, the cross is for you. The gospel is to be known better by you. And this has an effect on us too, doesn't it? As people who are blown away by a God who would buy us, we're meant to join in the psalmist in quite a change. Having come from great depths and met with the great God, suddenly, in verse 5, there's this kindled great desire. If we can have the next slide. Look at the contrast between verse 3 and verses 5 to 6. 5 to 6 say this, read with me. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. We are to be people who have a great desire. A great desire. We've known God in salvation and now he is a God we want. I think this is what the fear of verse 4 is kind of like in life. Our profoundest desire is our God. Not the forgiveness, not redemption. We have it. It's him. Look at who the waiting is for in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. It's the person. I want to see him and be with him. The psalmist wants this. Do you see where he wants it? In his inmost being, in his soul. Having come out of great depths, boy, does he have this great desire for God himself. I want the one I've been reconciled to more than anything. That's what I want. Do you see the more? Look at verse 6, more than, more than, watchmen wait for the morning. How do watchmen wait for the morning? They watch for it patiently, diligently, watchfully, faithfully. How else do they wait? How do watchmen wait for a morning? Eagerly, eagerly. They long for the dawn. They want the night to end. They want to see the sun. There's a Dalmatian that lives on our street, and every day I go past it, and there's the front door, and by it's the kind of, I guess, a lounge window. And every day that Dalmatian is in the window, longing for its master to return. More than watchmen wait for the morning. This is how our souls should be for the Lord. I think for the psalmist, part of the waiting is to see how the Lord will redeem. We've seen that, haven't we, in the Lord Jesus. But we're still awaiting people. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back a second time to make everything that we've looked at in this psalm full and real, to be with him, to enter his dwelling, to be together forever. This is so precious, isn't it? Especially when we've come from the depths, to know that we're going to get Jesus. 
This is what we want. You remember a few years ago, the Chilean miners. It's an amazing story, wasn't it, of coming out from the depths? And I remember when they came to the top, there was two embraces that they longed to give. First embrace for the ones they'd been separated from. The ones who they'd been reconciled to. They wanted to hold them. The second embrace they wanted to give was to the ones who'd rescued them. Those people who had channeled down and saved their lives. They wanted to embrace them. Christian, if you belong to Christ, he is both of those embraces for you. He is the one who we're separated from, who we long to be with, and he is the one who has done the saving. Lord, it's for you. For your coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. This is who we are. That's why the early church had a catchphrase, and that catchphrase was, come, Lord Jesus. We want you to be here. John Piper tells the story of being sat in a cafe with his daughter, and out of nowhere, John just said, because he's John Piper, I want the Lord Jesus to return. And his daughter said, Daddy, I really want to get married. We get that, don't we? Sometimes there's things we desire. Maybe those desires begin to trump that desire to meet with the Lord Jesus. We were singing, come Lord Jesus at Contagious. Part of me thought, yeah, but I'd quite like to go home and see Grace one last time first. Christian, if you would struggle to desire this, I think the best thing to do is go back to the depths and go back to the greatness of God. The more you understand what he has done to bring you to himself, and the more you understand how hard that is, given the depths of what you are in, the more you will want him, more than watchmen wait for the morning. This is who he is. Finally, I think with the psalmist, we should be people greatly hoping, great hope, greatly hoping. This is an ongoing thing. We know that the Lord has done some amazing things. And we know what he will do and we know what he's promised to do. How? Come with me to verse five. What are we meant to do while we wait? Where should our hope be? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Here is where we should be hoping while we wait. In his word. His word that assures us of his unfailing love. His word that gives us confidence of his return. His word that reminds us of all he's done and all he is doing. His word that sustains us while we wait. His word which stops us going back into the depths. Hope in the word while you wait. That's how we get sustained. I think he also calls us to be people as we hope in the word, to hope in the person who the word is all about, in the Lord Jesus. To be hoping people. But I think finally, as we greatly hope, we're to be people like the psalmist who herald others to join us in our hoping. Brothers and sisters, we hear this all the time like we hear the gospel all the time, but it is so true. And if you know the great depths and you know the great God and you have that great desire, you will be someone who goes and tells others about the great hope, who says, oh, Edinburgh, put your hope in the Lord. We live in a city in great depths. This is our world. Our neighbors are drowning. School friends are drowning. We have great news of a great God with whom there's forgiveness and unfailing love and full redemption. We desire him greatly, but we hope that others will come to join us in this great hope. Let's pray.